Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Ao, a VC founder and father. Join us for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.jeremyao.com. Hi, Gabby. I'm so excited to have you on the show. Hi, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. Really excited to be here. I'm really excited because, first of all, Go Bears, another UC Berkeley alum. Yes. As well as someone <laughs> who went to Bain as a management consultant. Yes. And building up an amazing social enterprise in Jakarta, Indonesia. So just an incredible amount of firepower is coming from you, Gabby. Thanks a lot, Jeremy. Yeah, no, I know. Fellow Bear and fellow Baney. So go Bears. <laughs> I know. And uh, I think the first time we met, we were both reminiscing about the Indonesian food that was right next to campus, Jayakarta. Oh, yeah. Maybe that's where all the, the Berkeley Indonesian Student Association, the Singaporean, Singapore <laughs> Student Association. Yes, yes. No, I know. <laughs> we'll all hang out. Just the yes. cross border unity no, exactly. around food. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, unfortunately, it's no longer there, but it's okay. It was it was nice while it lasted. Oh, yeah, I know. Time flies indeed. No, exactly. So, Gabby, for those who don't know you yet, who are you? Yeah, so I'm an Indonesian-American and also an ex-consultant who's very passionate about education and how it can be used to, quote-unquote, level the playing field, specifically in an Indonesian context. So for those who don't know me, I'm currently building a social enterprise startup known as Bolu. We empower MSMEs in Indonesia by helping to teach them how to sell online and giving them the resources to be successful. We're currently a community of about 50,000 MSMEs and, and growing. Majority are women, and it's been a great, great journey so far to be able to help them out, especially during this coronavirus. Yeah. Tell us more about what was it like growing up? Because you grew up in Indonesia and in America. So what was that like? I was born in Jakarta, born in Jakarta, and was here up until the 98 riots. And it was about then that my family decided to move to the United States. So we all packed, headed over to LA and spent the majority of my childhood in Los Angeles. For university, then I moved up to the Bay, not too far, to UC Berkeley, where I was there, studied sociology and also economics. And that was where I fell in love with education or the idea that Education can really help to level the playing field and allow for social mobility. Then I got there, it was there in Berkeley, and I also got very involved in the Indonesian community. I met some of my closest friends who are also Indonesian. And also during my time there, I had done a few internships back in Indonesia too. So that was what made me start thinking about moving to Indonesia, especially seeing as how there's a huge talent gap at that time. So I decided that after college, I was going to start a career in Southeast Asia. Luckily, I uh, managed to get a career in Bain, became part of the Jakarta office. And I left about a year ago, right when COVID started to pick up to start or to join this, this social enterprise with my co-founders with the dream to help MSMEs during that time. Yeah. So that's just a little bit of backstory. <laughs> 
Yeah. Amazing. It's a quite a common story for a lot of Indonesians that have been impacted by the Jakarta riots. And yeah. So what was it like? Do you remember much about it, about the move? Because do you remember anything about whether it was abrupt or how your parents explained to you growing up? Yeah. So to be honest, I don't remember much of it, but I do remember when I moved over, I knew no English at all. And when I started school and everything, did not even know how to communicate, how to ask where the bathroom was. And so embarrassing story, but I ended up peeing in my pants because I just couldn't speak the language. (laughs) So it was a rough move, but my parents went over, they moved over. My dad actually started a business over there too. So come from a family of entrepreneurs and From there, we were able to grow the business. And now my parents, my family is all there with no no plans to move back to Indonesia, actually. So it's only me back here now. What was it like growing up in America with those Indonesian roots? I guess you must have eaten Indonesian food. (laughs) How did you think of home? Yeah. Yeah. Growing up, it was quite interesting. I think I was very grateful because my community is very Asian. So my school, my high school at least, we were predominantly Asian, 70-80%. Most of my friends came from immigrant families. And so we all kind of had similar upbringings. I didn't feel very uncomfortable at all there. And it was really great just being able to share kind of that Asian American background with, with all of them. In terms of like a specifically more Indonesian background, didn't have too many Indonesian friends growing up. I remember from coming from a school of about 3,000, we had, I could count like 10 Indonesians in the entire school, which is a quite, uh, quite, I guess you could say that it's not a very small number, but compared to all the other ethnicities, we're, we're very outnumbered. But growing up, I think It wasn't uncomfortable, but definitely was not in tune with my Indonesian culture. Of course, my parents did speak it to me at home, but I would always respond back in English. So uh, the move here was what solidified that heritage and culture in me. (laughs) And that's interesting because there you are, you're growing up and then you go to UC Berkeley and you're starting to have this process where you're saying, okay, my parents have migrated to America and I want to work in Southeast Asia. So so how does that process happen? Yeah. So to be very honest, it was a long process. If you had asked me when I first started university, whether or not I would move back to Indonesia, my first response, immediate response would have been no, never, no way. It's hot, lots of mosquitoes. You you don't have Chipotle there. (laughs) But for me, it started off it started off with my involvement in, in the Indonesian Student Association, actually. Had a lot of friends in during college. By chance, I had my my floor mates were Indonesian, so they had exposed me to to the whole Indonesian community. And year after year in college, I started to get more and more involved to the point where I considered interning in Indonesia, and which I did for three years, actually. I came back to Indonesia. And at that time, it was really great because Grab or Uber and, and Gojek were picking up. And so it was extremely easy to get around. So I saw the, the possibility and could start considering the possibility of moving back to Southeast Asia, especially towards the end of my college career. Things were starting to pick up here. There's so much growth and so much potential even now. So it just made a lot of sense after college for me to move here. It's a lot more exciting, especially in the, in the tech industry. And 
compared to, I think, home, quote unquote home, where everything was a lot more structured, a lot more established. Everything here is a lot more exciting. <laughs> so there you are at UC Berkeley, obviously, and you make a decision to go work at Bain mm-hmm. and you decide to make the move to do that in Southeast Asia. So those are two very big decisions. Yeah. So how did that happen? Yeah, I knew I knew in college that I wanted to be in Southeast Asia and I knew Bain was heavily recruiting for their Jakarta Southeast Asia office because it had just opened up. I think even the Bain Indonesia office is less than 10 years now, 10 years old right now. I saw that as like a huge possibility. And so when I had gone through applications, job applications, and I had applied to consulting, I actually applied all of those jobs in Southeast Asia, either Singapore or Jakarta. To be honest, it wasn't it wasn't too difficult of a decision, especially knowing that my experience in Indonesia had been so positive. And also I did have relatives in Indonesia, although not immediate family, but I, I had people to who I could ask for help if I needed it, if I did come back and I I needed that support. Yeah. But how? Why? So <laughs> you're just hanging out with Indonesians, you're eating at Jayakarta. There's still a big jump because you're making making a decision to be a consultant. Fine, I get it. Yes. That's default to consulting. <laughs> I mean, I, I say this as someone who also ended up going to consulting after. And then the thing is, you also made a geographic decision as well. Yes. Was it like hard? Was it easy? What else were you weighing at that point of time? Yeah, maybe I have to leak a little something to make things a little more understandable. So at that time, I had also started dating my boyfriend who is Indonesian. And he is also a Bain alumni. So actually, he had got an offer at Bain before I did and in the Jakarta office. And so when I was recruiting, I was like, okay, you know what? I'll, I'll also apply. And I knew I wanted to be in Southeast Asia. So that's when I, I started applying and everything. So I think having him in the picture really made the decision a lot easier because having him was also a big support system too. So yeah, maybe I <laughs> should have mentioned that earlier. <laughs> now nah, this is very understandable. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Because it is a big move. Exactly. You gotta do it, right? Lots of people do that same move. Exactly. Yeah, for both the personal and the professional. So, and it's a great combination, right? And what a power couple. Oh, <laughs> I'm assuming. Still going strong. Yes, still are. Still are. And he's also doing something social too. He's currently in Kitabisa. Now we've moved on from consulting to do some good. Oh, that's so sweet. What a power couple. So, there you are. That makes a lot of sense. So, you're there, you know, it's a way for you get home and be there. And, of course, when you actually did move to Bain and do the internship and do the job, there must have been some culture shock. So tell us more about what that was like. Yeah. So actually, the culture shock didn't come specifically from the Bain office, but it came more when after I left Bain, actually. So when I first moved to Indonesia, I didn't really experience too much of the culture shock just because I f- feel that Jakarta as a whole is is very westernized. And also me having grown up in a very Asian-American culture, we kind of met in the middle. It wasn't too too difficult to get accustomed here. But it did come once I left Bain into Bolu, actually, because a big portion of, of my team, they didn't come from universities overseas and they didn't have that westernized culture that I grew up with. And so it came as a bigger shock then, I think, I had to start using a lot more Indonesian, which is really great because uh, I 
feel like my Indonesian has improved greatly since I, I left. In addition, the biggest shock for me is it, it came more from the cultural level in terms of speaking. <laughs> I have been told that I'm very direct, <laughs> though I would argue otherwise. So I've learned on that aspect as well to be a little bit more toned down with my words. Yeah. So I think that was the biggest change that I've had to make. <laughs> That's a big tip actually for a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, and so there you are. And it's interesting that you had been and what did you learn while you had been as a management consultant? Ooh, lots of things. Uh, would highly recommend becoming a consultant once you when you first start your career. Uh, learned a lot, actually. I think number one, definitely the data analysis side. Before going into Bain, I knew nothing about Excel, knew nothing about PowerPoints or communicating using data. That was a huge plus point for me joining in. I left Bain with a very solid toolkit uh, in that aspect. Number two, I learned how to communicate my thoughts in a way that is a lot more clear. I think one thing that consultants really emphasize is communicating for results, right? And so making sure that you're able to put everything in a way that's succinct, but at the same time creates a good impact. Number three, I think what I really learned in Bain is kind of more on the, the client management aspect as well. So being able to see them build relationships with clients. So one thing in Indonesia, very thankful that I'm, I got it to be a part of the Jakarta office because of this is I was able to learn the whole Indonesian client culture. I don't know about Singapore, Jeremy, but in Indonesia, there's a very thin line between like friends and clients. And so what, that was one thing that Bain really taught me also. And very thankful for that, having left. <laughs> having done all that, what was the reason why you decided to build this Bolu? To be very honest, Jeremy, I knew coming into consulting that I didn't want to stay for long. I knew that I wanted to come in to build that toolkit and to learn. But I knew that I was very passionate about education. I wanted to do something where I could teach people and give back to other people, not just build my own skill set. And so I think better to paint the context. I had left Bain last year, so around June 2020, when COVID was still growing or picking up. Even at that time, I saw the impact that it made on Indonesians, especially in the MSME sector. And I had been in touch with my co-founders at Bolu since January. I was already thinking about leaving. It, it was sitting in my heart, but I hadn't made the decision. Once COVID started picking up and peaking, I decided that, okay, you know what? Uh, rather than stay in, in Bain and make slides or continue on my career, I think it would be a lot more meaningful for me to leave and actually help people during this time, help them get through this pandemic, help their businesses through. It just felt like the right time and the right moment during that time. And that was what, what pushed me to leave. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> Leaving. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> I also like to leave. Bain is such a beautiful place. It's a little utopia. So, yeah. Great colleagues, great work, great pay, yes. Yes. great culture. <laughs> Honestly, in retrospect, probably great bosses on average. Those, yeah. Obviously, there's a range of bosses, but still the worst boss was actually pretty good in the grand scheme of things. Yes, agree. <laughs> so how do you think about all of that? Yeah, uh, definitely before I left, 
I weighed the pros and cons. I had talked to a lot of people too, and a lot of them told me, hey, are you sure you want to leave? COVID isn't going anywhere. There's a huge risk factor. This could fail. Also, you won't get the same learning. You won't get the, the same mentorship, the same cushion in vain as elsewhere. But what really helped me make the decision was asking myself, if I didn't take this opportunity, would I regret it? And the answer was yes. And at the end of the day, I took it, sent in my resignation letter, and the rest is history. <laughs> wow, what a jump. And yeah. what was the transition like? Because one day you're a consultant and obviously you've been working on it a little bit already on the side. Mm-hmm. But what was the difference between working on that part-time versus working on that full-time? Oh, it was a, it was a big jump. Big difference, actually. I think the first thing that I think was the biggest shock to me or the biggest hurdle that I had to overcome was the mindset. Because I think when you're in consulting, a lot of it is very cushioned, very safe. Every decision that you make, you've already either taken the experience from elsewhere. And so you know it's going to work 100% of the time. But for entrepreneurship or for creating something new, it's all about failure and testing and being able to learn from all your mistakes. And so I had to really be able to learn how to be okay with not being right, if any, like 50% of the time, and how to just keep going. Because that's not something that they teach in consulting, unfortunately, and something that I had to learn outside. And the second was managing and hiring a team. Yes, in Bain, I was somewhat part of recruiting, trying to convince great young talent into, into Bain, but not in a way where you know I had to actively reach out to people and negotiate salary, convince them to, to join my venture that may or may not succeed. So I think those two were, were the biggest things that I had to learn right off the bat. Yeah. Wow. That feels tough. How did you cope with that personally? Yeah. To be honest, it was it was very difficult. It was a very difficult first three to six months. I think personally, I, during that time, I had a lot of self-reflection. I also reached out to a lot of people. I read a lot of articles too. And having that support really, really helped actually. A lot of people always say that it's lonely at the top and, and having a, a good, strong support system and people to ask questions to or or ask experience from is key to success in especially in entrepreneurship yeah like they say in Bain we always have mentors in Bain to reach out to like whether they're informal or formal they're always readily available and provided to us right but once you're outside once you're in entrepreneurship you kind of have to make those connections and reach out to those people on your own and That, I think, that support system outside of Bain, well, and and within Bain also was what got me through those three to six months. How does a founder build their own mentor network? (laughs) I think a little bit of everything here and there. So I consider the, the term mentor, I consider not just like anyone can be a mentor, right, Jeremy? And so for me, I find my mentors anywhere. So anywhere from old bosses that I've interned for to people that I've been introduced to by mutual relationships to even kind of like family friends or even family. So my mentor network, my mentor board of directors is a little bit of everyone because I I think at least for me, 
I learn different things from different people and I try to build my experience from different people. So from more a more professional standpoint or from how to build a team, I'll, I'll lean on one mentor. But if I want to work more towards culture, then I'll, I'll ask another mentor. And so for me, I've, I built it from all over, <laughs> not just one from one source. I do recommend entrepreneurs to have that way of building because then you get to take from people who come from multiple different backgrounds and not just one. Yeah. And when you have so many different mentors, how do you decide whether something is good advice or bad advice versus what you actually have to decide for yourself? Yeah, that good question. I think that was something I struggled with early on because I used to take everyone's advice at face value, but I learned from mistakes. I learned from just following right from what they say and applying it into my lives. I learned that that's not always the best advice. So I guess you could say that I learned from trial and error, applying and then seeing if it works for me. If it doesn't, then I I set it aside and then try to apply it with my own twist. Unfortunately, there's no easy way. I think I've gotten better in the past year, sifting through what is relevant and what's not. But still, for me, it's a learning experience and I'm still learning from trial and error. I like the phrase you said, don't take advice at face value. Yeah. So how does that actually work? So you go up to someone and someone's like, oh, this idea sucks or this idea is good or you should do A or you should not do B. How do you get past the face value of that advice because, you know, yeah. it's half an hour, one hour conversation. Yeah. So for me, I know that as a founder, I'm the person who knows my company best. And no matter how much explanation that I give within one hour, my mentor or wh- whoever I'm speaking with will never know what I know. And they'll never have as much backstory as I do. And so at the end of the day, they may be able to give me the right feedback for that specific amount of information that I give. But maybe for a lot of other situations, it might not apply. And so I think when I'm in this situation, definitely I absorb everything. I sit there and I try to absorb as much as I can and learn from them. And then it's not until after the conversation that I'll, I'll sit down and go through my thoughts, go through notes and try to see what is applicable, what is what may not be as so. What advice do you have to give to mentors who <laughs> give advice? <laughs> I mean, I, so obviously we're talking about the defensive side, which is like, you know, how do we receive and triage and prioritize? Yeah. What advice would you give to mentors out there who are talking to founders? <laughs> do you feel attacked, Jeremy? I'm sorry if you do. <laughs> no, I don't feel really attacked. I'm just kind of curious now. <laughs> yeah. No, actually, that's a great question. What advice would I give to mentors? Listen as much as you can, but at the same time, understand that maybe their circumstance may not be one-on-one to to yours. So, so one example for this is I've talked to a lot of mentors who are in the ed tech space. So Bolu, you could think of it as somewhat of an ed tech social enterprise in a way. For them, they may know what works well in other countries, more developed countries, right? But when you apply it to a more Indonesian perspective or culture, it doesn't always work, especially with the circumstance of the technological infrastructure, the culture of 
not appreciating education just yet. And so sometimes when I get feedback or tips from mentors who are more used to an American culture or an American perspective, I learn to take what they say with a grain of salt, but then at the same time, like apply it to an Indonesian lens as much as I can. Yeah. So (laughs) understand the differences. And if we don't apply your feedback, it's okay. It's, it's, we listen, we absorb everything. Um, But sometimes certain things just can't be applied as easily. (laughs) So that's, that is what I would say. (laughs) Okay. Got it. So if you're American, don't be too American. And if you're an asshole, don't be an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because I've had multiple people, Jeremy, they tell me, oh no, you should do it. You should push it more from a text standpoint. But to be very honest, Indonesia, yes, we're very, we're a lot more technologically advanced than we were five years ago, but there's still a lot of Indonesia that isn't able to keep up with the development. I feel that the infrastructure still needs a lot of work. And at the same time, like the, just the culture and, and the habit that you need to build. It's not there yet. And so as much as we would like to, to push for tech advancement, the demand isn't quite there yet. And the, the education isn't quite there yet either. Yeah. So this is more from an education standpoint, but yes. <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah. And so there you are. And so far you've been obviously tackling a lot of different advice and everything. And one interesting thing is that, you know, you've been helping a lot in the, you know, Southeast Asia and Indonesia context I was just kind of, kind of curious, obviously helping a lot of small sellers and kind of like get online. How has the pandemic been for them and for your team? It's been, to be very honest, it's been very rough. A lot of our sellers are still micro and many of them are offline. And so having to teach them how to go online has not been easy. And well, first of all, their their revenues have been hit. A lot of them before the pandemic were relying on their daily profits to keep alive. And because of the pandemic, their offline sales have completely been, been shut off. And so we specifically have been trying to reach out to as many people as possible through both online and offline means to teach them how to go online. So for us, the very minimal is just knowing how to sell through WhatsApp. Because as long as you're able to sell through WhatsApp, you can sell to previous clients or or previous customers and still be able to have some cash flow. It's been difficult. Unfortunately, there's some people who haven't been able to to take on that I have to sell online mindset until much later. And a lot of them, it's, it's been very difficult. But for others, I know for some of our sellers, actually, they, they've seen a huge uplift since the COVID situation. But for the, for the majority, like 90%, I would say it's hit them quite hard. But in terms of my team, luckily enough, we started out during the pandemic. And so for us, we've had no layoffs. But last week, actually, we did have our first death in the team, which has hit our team quite hard. But I'm very fortunate to have a great team who is very strong and very positive thinking. So we're learning to cope and and get through this together as best as we can. Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, I think pandemic's been terrible and yeah. condolences to obviously your team and your teammates' family. And it's been an interesting time for everyone just trying to build and survive through this pandemic, both on a personal basis as well as a for company sure. basis. Yeah. yeah, it hasn't been easy for anyone. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Gabby, I mean, I would love to start wrapping things up here. Could you tell us about a time that you personally have been brave? I think the most recent situation for me is definitely my career move. I know that, especially amidst the pandemic, <laughs> my parents, my relatives, even a few of my, my personal and professional mentors mentioned to me, hey, are you sure? Are you sure you want to leave in the midst of the pandemic? Uh, you won't have that solid pay. You won't have, you won't have that, that strong backing even for career as well. But yeah, at least for me, the most recent time that was really a huge job for me was switching careers and switching from having a more corporate role into becoming a founder. Yeah. It's been a journey, Jeremy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Do you feel like you really understood what they meant to become a founder before you became a founder? Or is it something you realize later? No, no. So, uh, yeah, that, no, 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 no. I think (laughs) it's a little, it was a little bit a mix of both braver as well as ignorance. I feel like with a lot of founders, you kind of know what you're getting yourself into, but you really don't know until you get in there and start building it from scratch. Yeah, you really don't know. Because People will tell you all these stories. You'll read all about these things. But once you're in the situation, it's easier said than done sometimes. And whatever you learn in the books is sometimes thrown out the the window. And sometimes you just have to keep going, keep at it. (laughs) So to be very honest, no, not at all. (laughs) (laughs) What would you say that you didn't know then that you know now? Hmm. It's a very good question. One of the things that I've learned, and I think I mentioned earlier, is the founder's mindset is probably the most important because that will really drive you and your ability to get keep your team going. Also, knowing that it's okay to not have all the answers sometimes. That's why you have your board of director of mentors to reach out to and know that it's it's okay to ask for help. I think... Google and YouTube have become my best friend in the past year. (laughs) Uh, In addition to my mentors, (laughs) it's okay to not know everything. And it's okay to just do things while not knowing 100% that things are going to go well. As someone who came to consulting, that was something that I had to learn. And I wish that the old me knew. It would have saved me a lot of time, a lot of anxiety, a lot of frustration. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, lots of people learn via Google and YouTube. So there's really no shame. I would yeah. say I learn most of my stuff oh, exactly. via Google and YouTube these days as well. Exactly. The, a, lot of the, a lot of what you learn is actually not in the books. <laughs> so uh, sometimes the best teachers are, are those you find on YouTube. So there you are. And I'm just so curious if you had a time machine and you travel back 10 years ago to 2011. <laughs> Where were you and what would you share with yourself? Oh, wow. 2011. So I think probably during that time, oh, I, w- I was probably still stressing out about jobs and college. <laughs> I would tell myself back then, you know, if work hard, do as much 
as you can, but sometimes life will play out in ways that you don't expect and you can't control. So do your best. Do everything that you possibly can do, but don't don't spend too much time stressing about things that is out of your control. Because luck, timing has a big factor, and you just have to roll with the punches sometimes. <laughs> yeah. What does rolling with the punches mean to you? Oh, for me, it's number one taking opportunities as they come. Don't be completely rigid and think that if you have a plan. Just sticking to that plan, because the best opportunities and the best things will come unexpectedly. And for me, for example, right, no idea that I wanted to go to Indonesia yet. I ended up here, and it's the best decision. So take opportunities as they come, and and don't limit yourself to just what you think or what you plan for yourself, because you'll you'll really close a lot of doors if you do. Amazing! Thank you so much, Gabby. I love to wrap things up by sharing the, like any good consultant, the top three <laughs> things <laughs> I learned from this conversation. The first is thank you so much for sharing about what was it like to grow up in Indonesia and America and your journey on a personal front about getting comfortable and re-immersed back in Indonesia culture to actually make the decision to move back to Jakarta for professional reasons as well as personal reasons. That's a very fair way to think about it. The second is thank you so much for sharing, I think, a lot of the learnings that you had as a founder and as a Bain consultant, especially regarding like what you took away and what you got trained on at Bain, but also what you learned was different about Indonesia, was different about being a founder, and what is needed to have and receive good mentorship advice. And the final decision is yours, right? They said, the founder knows best. And lastly, I think thank you so much for exhibiting the spirit of what you described as rolling with the punches. I think there's so many tough times that you've gone through both personally as well as professionally, as well as your team during this pandemic. And so I think uh, you really embody that spirit of bravery and rolling with the punches. Thanks a lot, Jeremy. That was very good. <laughs> thank you. And thank you for providing the platform also for, for me to share and also not, not just that, but learn from all the others who've been on your podcast as well. Yeah. Awesome. Very, very happy. Very happy. (laughs) (laughs) I'm happy to share your story as well. So thank you so much, Gabby. I'll see you. Thanks. Bye. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyow.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave.